and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Is everything actually total buying? Today, we're going to have a wonderful guest. Before we introduce him, I want to introduce the other panelists that we have today. So Justin Dorfman, how are you doing? Doing great, Richard. How are you? Doing good. Thanks. Glad to see you as always. Although maybe not the hat because the East Coast is better than the West. (laughs) Totally irrelevant to this podcast. I'm sorry. Our guest today is Bruno Souza. Bruno is the Brazilian Java man, the man with the flag, which is really not enough to describe him. Bruno is a Brazilian Java programmer who's also a member of the OSI. He's been on the board of directors for at least two terms now. He represents affiliates. On top of that, he founded Sue Java, which is a Brazilian Java user group, which is the world's largest. He's been around forever, and he was involved with some of the earliest JVMs and has been very influential, not only in Brazil, but in the Java open source world at large. Bruno, so good to have you. How are you doing? Hey, Richard, how are you doing? Hi, Justin. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here with you. You know, I think that open source is the best thing developers can do for their careers. I have a good friend of mine that says that open source is the natural way to develop software when you're in a network environment. And so I really believe that. And so basically, let's talk about open source here because that's something I really love. Thanks for the opportunity. Love it. Right to the good stuff. Awesome. How did you first get involved with open source? How long have you been a developer? Oh, man, that's, that's a long time. Yes. <laughs> you know, I started with software when, you know, my dad gave me a computer. It was a TRS-80. So, nice. yeah, the only thing we could do is actually do software, right? Because we couldn't run anything or ex- existed, right? So, so basically, some fun days back then. But I really got involved with open source because I started working with Java in 1995 when Java first came out. The very first alpha version of Java came out. And by that time, there's no definition of open source, right? So around the year 2000, there was a big discussion in Brazil because of open source and free software and all that. And Java was being used for many years already in Brazilian companies and in Brazilian governments to achieve some form of freedom, right, from vendors. And so around 2000, that discussion, we start by, you know, oh, Java is open source, Java is not open source, all this kind of thing. So that's when I got involved in the open source community. For me, the fact that Java was available with source code was awesome, right? Because you know, that was an awesome way for us to learn, for us to, to use the technology. And then it took some time for me to really understand that although it was available with source code, it was not open source, right? So around 2000, that's when I really got involved in the open source community. I got called into that discussion of the Brazilian government. And then we went from there, right? So we start you know, discussing about open source and how to really use open source in the country. And then later on, I got involved with the open sourcing of Java, right? And so, you know, that's how I started. So that's awesome. That's definitely a longer pedigree than most of the people we have on here. And that's not a bad thing. It means that you know where the bodies are buried, as Denise Cooper (laughs) likes to say. So one of the things that interests me is you said that since 2000, you've been involved with open source. But open source isn't much older than that, according to the OSI, right? So the open source initiative started around then, like 1999 or something, someone was in a room and said open source. Yeah, so, so, so the open source definition is from 1998. So in a way, I got involved really early. But really, for me, the big thing was that when Java came out in 1995, right, Java came out with a crazy license, right? Really, really crazy license. We didn't allow you to do a lot of things. It's definitely very far away from an open source license as you can 
maybe not as far as you can get, but you know, very far away from an open source license. But it came out of the source code and we were able to play with it and experiment and change it and recompile and create things out of that. And so for me, that's the notion I had about, you know, having access to the source code and how important it was because, you know, allowed us to, you know, before there's no books about Java, there's no, no course about Java, right? So we learn it reading the source code. And for me, there was like, you know, it was blew my mind, like a huge, important moment. And then, you know, I had some understanding of the free software community because, you know, Richard Stallman had come to my university a couple of years later, uh, earlier than that. And so uh, I had some understanding of the importance of this. And so for me, when open source was defined in 1998, although I was not in any way involved with that, but for me, that's when Netscape released the source code of the browser, right? And so I was really full on that part because Netscape was the first browser that actually adopted Java, right? So no, so, so there's a lot of relationship with that right there. So for me, that discussion really opened my eyes on how important it was for a developer to have access to the source code of the things they were doing, right? But then it was more than that, right? Because it's not only access, right? You had to be able to do something with the source code. You had to be able to really share with others, right? And so that's what open source attracted me. And for me, there's one interesting thing is that lots of people don't realize is that, you know, the fact that Java came out of the source code and it was not an open source license, right? That helped a lot of us to understand the value of open source because we were relying on a very important technology that although we had access to source code, it was not available for us to do anything we wanted with it. So it was kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing because Java had another important thing that it was very important for the Brazilian government. Lots of people forget about that sometimes that, you know, when the Brazilian government start adopting Java and, and you know, I, I think the first big Brazilian government company that adopted it was Bank of Brazil that adopted Java in 1996. And so when they adopted that, they were looking for freedom, right? You know, the, the adoption of Java was important because they were looking for freedom because they wanted to be free from the vendors, right? You know, they were looking for a technology that would allow them to choose different vendors instead of just being locked in one single vendor. You guys you know, everyone knows which single vendor was that time, right? But, you know, but the Brazilian government were, were locked to a single vendor and they chose Java to be able to choose different vendors. And that was freedom, right? And we forgot about that, right? We forget that that's a big freedom. And so for me, when I start discussing open source in 2000, my whole objective was to discuss those two freedoms together, right? You know, the freedom to choose different vendors and the freedom to do what you want with the software you're using, right? So those for me are two freedoms that can't just be ignored or separate apart, right? So that's my point. You know, speaking of Java and freedom, what is your stance on Oracle versus Google? And for listeners at home that don't know what I'm referring to, it's the copyright on Java APIs and whether Google infringes on those copyrights. So what is your stance? How did you feel during the whole legal proceedings? For me, it was a very interesting thing, right? Because for me, first of all, I'm looking for this from the inside the Java community. And on the Java side, when Google did adopt Java as a technology for Android, it was a huge gain, right? I mean, we loved that because really we had a new way to get Java into a new device, right? You know, with the whole discussion we have about Java uh, being able to run in multiple different devices, and all, that was an awesome thing. And so Google adopting Java on Android was fantastic. But at the same time, they did not. 
I mean, they went halfway or like a long way, right? But they did not really adopt Java into Android. You know, it was slightly different. You could not really use the same tools that you're using. There's all kinds of little things. And for us, as developers in the Java community, it was like a little bit of a betrayal, you know, because what we wanted was to be able to have the full Java, right? There's no reason why Google could not have done like a full Java implementation on Android at that time, right? You know, remember that by the time the Android came out, the cell phones were at a faster than the computers we had when, we, when Java first started, right? So there's no reason not to be able to do that. So it was a little bit like a very exciting moment and a little bit of a betrayal because that's not really Java. And we've been fighting with this for so many, because there's a lot of other vendors that tried that, that tried to do like, you know, slightly Java-like things, you know? And so for me, it was like, it was more like Google was relying and benefiting from all of the, from the Java tools, from all the knowledge around Java, from all the developers that knew Java. But at the same time, they did not commit to the community, right? So that was our feeling as a developer, right? And so, you know, and that was on the, at Suntime. It was long before Oracle, by the way, right? So that was, there was doing the Suntime. And then when Oracle took over and, and they made the lawsuit, right? The problem with the lawsuit, it was, in terms of copywriting, it was damaging. I think that the way the lawsuit was done was damaging for developer, for software, in, in fact, right? So I think that we had this conflicting thing. For in one side, you know, doing some positive things that would bring Google into the Java community and like in full implementing Java, that would be a positive outcome. But at the same time, the way it was chosen, right, you know, to be like in copyright and that would be very damaging to copywriting APIs, for example, or other, or other things like this, was very bad. So it's a very conflicting situation. I don't agree with Google and I don't agree with Oracle, right? So it's like, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I understand the way I would say to develop, lots of people ask me this, right? So the way I would say to developers, right? Unfortunately, those are two huge, huge companies negotiating and, I mean, not negotiating, actually kind of litigating, right? And that's a very hard thing for you to take sides on this, right? Because, you know, I see the reasons why Oracle was doing it. I was there at Sun, right? When the whole discussion was going with Google. And I know that Google took some decisions on purpose, right? They, they specifically said, we're not going to be compatible. We're not going to, we, you know, Sun is not going to suit us. So they were very specific on this. But at the same time, doing this in a way that would impact and probably make the whole software industry bad, that's not a good reason, right? Sometimes it's like you're swimming side by side with whales. The whale doesn't even know you're there, doesn't care that you're there. If the whale decides to move in another direction, you're dead, right? And yeah. so that's how we, sh we should approach big companies many times, right? You know, we can swim side by side with them, but we understand that if they, you know, just change direction a little bit, they're just going to roll over us and not even, and they're not going to even care, right? So I'm a tiny little developer and trying to survive in this situation, let's say, Maybe survives too strong word, but you know, a tiny developer trying to swim with the big ones. And I understand that sometimes this get messy, but you know, I'm kind of glad that I think that in the end, what happened was that we were able to, before Oracle, right? We were able to get Sun to open source Java, right? And release Java in a, in a pretty awesome open source and free software license, GPL. And so with that, I think that this kind of solve it all the big problems that we had with Java, right? Because, you know, Java is fully open source. We have today, we have a huge community around it. 
And then I think that's this is the way going forward, right? And I think that if Google now it's willing to come back and kind of use the open source version of Java, that would be an awesome thing for all of us. Bruno, you mentioned this wonderful metaphor of swimming with whales. I really like that. And at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about the Brazilian government and how they just contacted you seemingly out of the blue. And this was really interesting to me because governments, if we're going to have whales mentioned anywhere metaphorically, they're massive and they're slow and they don't move fast at all. How did that happen? Like, how did they get in touch with you? And what role has Brazil played in open source? Because when I think of open source and Sun and Oracle, I think of California. I don't think of Sao Paulo. So I'm just curious how that happened. So first of all, the very first Brazilian company that's kind of, I'm not going to say adopt, the first to adopt, the first that was very public in adopting Java was Bank of Brazil in 1996, as I mentioned. And funny enough, it was not even a project from Sun. It was a project from IBM. And by that time, you know, Bank of Brazil reached out to Sun to help them kind of train the very first group. And I was the person that was there to train the very first team of Bank of Brazil. I was very lucky to join Sun a week before Java became, you know, Java was announced, right? So I, was, I, I started with Java in the very, very uh, beginning when Java was first announced. And so I was involved on the ISO efforts that Sun tried to standardize Java through ISO. And I don't remember exactly when there was that, maybe 97 or something like this. So I had some involvement with the Brazilian government at that time because ISO had discussions here in Brazil. And, and so Brazil discussed it about this and voted yes for the standardization of Java at that time. So then when the whole movement in Brazil started discussing open source and how to, to adopt free software and all of that, it was an interesting situation because the reality is that there's a lot of projects that are running in Linux. There was like the example of the Brazilian government using open source was using Linux, but all of those projects were actually running in Java because they were running Java in Linux. And so Brazilian government was doing a big push to kind of move into open source, to be free of vendors, you know, to actually have a more direction, you know, decision, you know, have a little bit more freedom on choosing software and choosing vendors and hiring people and hiring support, all these kind of things. So there's a big movement for that. And Java was kind of torn in the side because all of the big projects were actually running in Java and the Java VM was not open source. That's yeah. when I got caught in kind of to get into the discussion because, you know, they're like, okay, so we want to remove Java from those systems because if we remove Java, we're going to remove the proprietary part of it. And so then I joined in with that discussion that, you know, the whole point was that Java was not really a software only. Java, yes, so Java was an implementation and there was a software, there was the, the Java VM running it. But at the same time, Java was a standard that we could implement it as open source. So, th so that was the discussion. So for me, and by that time, that was when there was a change in the JCP that actually allowed for open source implementations of the Java standard. So, I mean, so there's a lot of things going on at the same time. Lots of people all over the world having the same discussion. Mm. And so... And let me apologize. My parents are yelling here in the background. So hopefully you don't hear too much. <laughs> no uh, apology needed. It's awesome. Please keep okay. You know, so basically we had the whole discussion about open source in Java and then, you know, how important it was for those two types of freedom to go side by side is the standards that you could implement. And so yep. if you could have a standard, you could implement with different vendors. And at the same time, that the standard was implemented as open source. So those discussions went 
uh, side by side. And basically, it's very interesting because SoJava, the Brazilian Java User Society, we got together with lots of other user groups in Brazil. And we wrote a manifesto explaining how we as developers, how we saw open source and standards, right, to play a role together, right? Because look, the interesting thing is that the Brazilian open source community at that, that time was mostly comprised of people using open source. So Linux and OpenOffice and, you know, basically people using tools. And so in the Java community in Brazil was by far the strongest development community that was developing for Linux using Java. So then basically we're bringing in the developer discussion, right? So for us, the whole point was, you know, it's not only about deciding to use open source, it's about to develop basing your code on standards and open source software, right? So basically you could have your code, you know, the, the code was done for the Brazilian government or, or for any company in that, for that matter. But the code that was done, because when you write code, there's a lot of knowledge that you had to put into this, a lot of work, hours of work and all of that. So the biggest effort you do is to develop your own software. You know, you, you can buy software from someone, you can download software from someone, but the big effort that you actually do is to write your own software. So if you could guarantee that the software that we wrote was based on the standard, and then you could swap like, you know, a proprietary database for a free database, right? For an open source database, you could, if you could swap out the proprietary message query for an open source message query, right? If you could swap out the proprietary Java VM for an open source Java VM, right? So if you could write our code based on standards and on top of open source implementations, that would give us the biggest freedom for the government and for companies. So that was the discussion that we brought in to that discussion. Then, so Java wrote a manifesto in 2002 about that. And then what happened was that that manifesto got a detention from several people from the government and Serpro, that is the, you know, the IT arm of the Brazilian finance ministry. So Serpro incorporated that document into their definition on how to do open source. And that was a definition that moved on to be like the standard definition for the whole government to, on how they should approach open source. So basically, because of Java and because of how important Java was in guaranteeing freedom for the Brazilian government, we kind of got into the, that discussion of, you know, of open source. We got into that discussion kind of a wrong way because we're trying, in a way, we're trying <laughs> to defend the fact that the Brazilian government was using a non-open source software. Yeah. But we're defending that, but kind of showing that it was possible to make that open source. And then... In 2004, we had a big meeting in Brasilia, actually, right? The capital of Brazil and where the, go the government is. So we had a big meeting with the people from Apache, the people from ClassPath. There was, you know, early implementation of the Java libraries in, in GPL. We had the, the people from Cafe VM, an early Java VM implemented in uh, fully open source too. And then we have the people from Apache. So we had all those people here in Brasilia, right? Discussing open source, discussing how to do Java in open source. We actually had people from IBM. We had people from Sun. We had people from the JCP, the Java Community Process. We had people from the OSI. So we had all of those people in Brasilia having this big discussion. And then at that time, we convinced Gare Magnusson, that was the president of Apache at the time. So we convinced Gare that it was the right time for Apache to embark on that effort of doing a, a free and open source implementation of Java. And so, so we got, you know, the guys from Coffee, the guys from ClassPath, the guys from Apache to join together and release and actually 
proposed to Apache Project Harmony. I was very honored to be one of the, the persons that actually signed up the, the letter to Apache, maybe not request, but to suggest right to Apache to start this effort. That was how Project Harmony started. And so Project Harmony, you know, it's been on the attic now, right? It's because basically what Project, I think the biggest contribution that Project Harmony did was to bring a lot of the open source movement together into that effort. And by doing this, Apache Harmony laid the groundwork for OpenJDK, right? It's for, for Sun to actually release the source code of Java under the GPL of class path exception and an open source license. And then, you know, you see a lot of the people that did Harmony are today working on OpenJDK, right? So in a way, it was like, it was the last push that we needed to get Sun to really embark that idea. Thank and you so, so much. I mean, that's, that's there's there's so much to, to talk about there that I just, I, I want to butt in because it's just, the breadth of the scale of open source in Brazil is really interesting. And also the fact that these decisions, which you've made together with, you know, Sue Java, the user group of 40,000 members now have really impacted the government and also projects that are used elsewhere in the world, which is really exciting to me as someone who loves user groups and communities ruling like and, and actually making decisions for them, which is one of the great things about open source. So I just wanted to highlight that before I believe Justin asked his question. Yeah, I, I so many questions came up in my head, but I think the one that's really sticking out for me is, you know, one company that comes to mind when Java comes up is JetBrains. You know, they have IntelliJ IDEA, the go-to IDE for the JVM, as I'm told. I mean, I could right. be completely wrong, but, you know, with the OpenJDK came Kotlin. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe go into what Kotlin means for the community, if it means anything, mm-hmm. and then what other projects took advantage of the OpenJDK contribution? Well, I think that OpenJDK was extremely important. There was an article, I think it was Dr. Dobbs, that it was with Jonathan Schwartz. So Jonathan Schwartz was the Sun president at the time, and they asked him, why did Sun open source Java? And so he said it was because of Brazil. And then, oh. and, and then he went on to clarify that, to say that the discussions with the Brazilian government, we want people all over the world to be able to use Java. And, you know, that there was the, the reasons why Brazil was questioning Java were valid reasons that people in governments all over the world. So basically, he did say that, well, I thought it was very interesting. But then in a personal conversation with a Oracle director, when Oracle acquired Sun, and we were worried about what Oracle was going to do with the open source Java VM, because Oracle could just decide not to develop it anymore. And so this Oracle director told me, and he said that, look, as far as I understand, I don't think Oracle would ever open source Java. But since it's already open source, we're going to do the best of it. And I think this was very important because Oracle did do amazingly with Java and open source because, you know, Oracle really embraced the whole idea of OpenJDK and in Oracle expanded the participation of companies because during Sun's time, the only people that were developing the OpenJDK was Sun. But Oracle went way above that. Today, we have more than 2,000 committers on OpenJDK from all different companies, from all different places. Lots and lots of companies participate on, on OpenJDK. So I think that the way the Oracle handled that was totally amazing. You know, for me, when I heard that, it's like, okay, so we did this in the right time. You know, can you imagine if Sun had not embraced the effort 
If Java was not open source before the acquisition, I don't know what Java is going to be today. So for me, I think OpenJDK was extremely important for Java. And now what happens is that we have so many things using the fact that Java is open source, right? Not only we have Java, you know, all of the Linux OSs, right, as a default language. We have a lot of the projects that we're doing, they're using Java. Their developers became part of OpenJDK, right? So the developers from ClassPath, the developers from Coffee. Uh, actually, you get Coffee VM. The maintainer of Coffee is today, it's Dalibor Topic. So Dalibor, he was here in Brasilia with us, right? On that discussion, we, take, we talk about he was representing Coffee on that discussion. And today, he's the community manager of OpenJDK. So OpenJDK attracted all of the developers. You know, so you get Red Hat, for example, that was sponsoring a class path, is today one of the main contributors of OpenJDK. So OpenJDK was really a hallmark project in attracting the whole Java community to come and develop the main implementation of Java. Because you have to think about that. So OpenJDK is the main implementation. There's no other Right? Oracle yep. doesn't have a second implementation of Java. So OpenJK yep. is the main implementation of Java, and it is open source. It is GPL. And then you have, for example, you know, many other companies, right? So Azul does their VM based on their, their source code, right? You have, you know, Twitter has an internal VM that's also based on, on OpenJDK, right? So, you know, so we have everyone actually using and basing their projects into OpenJDK. Now, to your question about, I think that one interesting thing that people don't really know is that from the very beginning, when Java first came out, it was two different things. It was you had the Java language and you have the Java VM. So I remember in the early days of Java, we had more than a hundred. There was a website that listed all the languages that would run on top of the Java VM. So we had more than a hundred languages running on top of the Java VM that time. Unfortunately, Sun, it got to a point that Sun wanted to push the Java language more. And so Sun stopped talking about all the languages that could run on top of the Java, Java VM. And then for long, for many years, Sun kind of pushing more the Java language itself than the, the whole Java ecosystem. But, you know, I, th I think that having Java open source it allows you to base other languages on top of the Java VM, right? So, you know, you have Scala that runs on top of the Java VM. You have, you know, Kotlin that runs on top of So many other languages run on top of the Java VM. And then you know, with other projects, now we have Python and, you know, everything else. I mean, today, a lot of languages run on top of Java VM. And I think this is awesome because there's no other runtime. I mean, today, almost every language runs on top of a runtime. So very rarely you have a language that runs that's only compiled, right? So, but Java is at the runtime in all history, the runtime they have received more investments from companies. So the, the Java runtime, it's an amazing runtime, has a lot of effort being done in performance, in scalability, in security. So there's a lot of effort. So I think that any language that can run on top of the Java VM, it's awesome because it just kind of expands even more the possibility of this runtime. So I love the fact that Kotlin runs on top of the Java VM. I love the Scala runs on top of the Java VM. And I think that a lot of develop. And look, honestly, for me as a developer, I see languages as tools. So I think that developers should know a lot of languages and kind of decide which tool works best for their project. So I'm like, like I'm not like, oh, I, you know, you should use Java for anything. The other way, use Kotlin if you if you like. Use, you know, use Java if you like. Use Scala if you prefer. But the fact that we can run those languages in the same runtime means that 
I can call a Scala library. Scala code can call a Java library. Kotlin can benefit from all the Java libraries. And if you see the investment on the Java libraries and on the Java runtime, it, other languages can use that. Man, that's called, that's totally amazing. So yeah. I, I love that. And I, I love like the pain you're making towards open source as an investment tool, as a tool to make companies work, as a tool to make projects work in the long run and make sure that they go viral, right? And that other languages work on top of them and everything is based on open source as the bedrock of how this all happened. Yes, I totally agree with that. I, yeah, so I think that open source allows that to happen. So that's yes. one thing. It's not only it's the bedrock, it, right? but yeah, if Java was not open source, that would be a lot harder for ha to happen. So a question I have is about how do we sustain that in the long run? It's already open source. Who's paying the current Java maintainers? How do we make sure that companies are responsible in doing that? How do we make sure that Sun gives back now that they're gone? What do we do? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's the big complication that we have many times is that how companies look at open source or free software in a negative way. So I, I think, that, you know, I still have to battle that after so many times. We started this conversation here by yeah. saying that open source is a natural way to develop a software in a network world. But at the same time, I still get questions. We just had an event this past week and we still had questions from developers. Oh, but you know, why I'm going to give my code away for free, right? You know, this is something wrong with that. So we still have to battle that with the developers. I mean, look, the, the biggest beneficiary of open source is the software developer. You know, you can talk about companies can benefit. You can talk that users can benefit. There's lots of benefits around open source. But really, the biggest beneficiary is a developer because the developer can learn, the developer can reuse, right? The developer is the right person to benefit from open source. The person that most benefit from open source asking why I should use open source or why should I participate in this movement? Because he's not clear about that. It's not unreasonable that the companies don't know why they should participate. So I think the biggest thing that we can do is actually show to companies how beneficial it is for them not only to use open source, because all of them are using open source. It's very funny. You can say, okay, my code is not, but you know, I'm benefiting yeah. from it. So uh, you know, lots of companies are benefiting from open source. But when they realize that it's not only for them to, to just use as is, but they can actually get the open source code and adapt and adjust and improve for what they're doing. So for example, you know, let's get back to the example that I gave about Twitter, right? Twitter use the Java VM to be able to serve, I don't know how many billions of tweets a day. You know, so and they use the Java VM to have performance to do that, but they don't use the Java VM as is. You know, they have engineers working to improve the Java VM and adapt the Java VM to what Twitter does. You know, they might remove some things, they might add other things, you know, whatever they're doing, but they're doing their own VM and they're doing this because the VM is open source. And now, not everything that Twitter does gets back into OpenJDK, right? Because not everything that Twitter does, it's interesting for the rest of the community. But the more Twitter can get that stuff and put on the VM, the less difference there is in between the open source version and what Twitter does. The less difference there are, the more Twitter can benefit from the advancements of the Java VM. So like that's that. true yep. for everything. You know, if you, yep. So... If, so you know, we are, we are doing here a podcast. So if you're using an open source podcast tool, for example, then, I mean, you can adapt your tool to your company, to what you're doing, to the things that are important for you. And then, of course, some company is going to say, yeah, but the, the things that I'm adapting, I'm going to keep just for me because I want to be 
you know, the super Uber podcaster place in the world, right? But the more difference there are between your code and the open source code, what happens that it's harder for you to keep evolving, right? It's harder for you to keep improving that code. So the closer it is, the easier it is for you to use that. So, you know, once companies understand that, and actually, I don't remember who said that to me, but in the very early beginning of the open source movement, someone told me something that stuck with me from that time. He said, you know, to be honest, open source should cost more than proprietary software. Why? Because it has an advantage that proprietary software doesn't. You have the source code. You know, come on, get to any proprietary company and say, look, I'm going to buy your software, but I want also want to buy the source code. See how much they charge you. It's a fortune, right? For, yeah. for you to have access to the source code. You know, and then we look at the source code for open source and we say, oh, that's not worth anything because it's free. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Reality, if you want to make sustainable open source, what you have to do is that we have to show the companies how valuable it is that code they have in their hands. And a lot of them don't see the value because they only use open source. They don't modify. They don't look at the libraries they are using. They don't validate for security. They're not doing the work on the open source code. They're just using as the only users. But really, I think the companies are using open source software. They have a gold in their hands and they forget to look at this. So the more we show this to companies, how valuable that thing is, the more sustainable open source is going to be. Because right now, you know, companies are just using it and they're considered, oh, it's free, so I can just use. And then we have huge distortions, like, you know, like we had with, with uh, you know, OpenSSL, you know, the other day, right? That's everyone uses it, but then you, they found out there's like, well, I have like one or two developers doing the code. That's crazy. You know, it's like companies that let their open source software be in this precarious situation. They are, they're throwing money down the drain. They're really ignoring the huge value they have in their hands. And if that value disappears, they're going to pay for it heavily. I love that. I think it's actually probably a really good point to stop at because that's pretty much sums up the entire podcast and sums up your conversation. You know, it's easy for me to come on here and say, open source is great. Companies should use it and pay for it. I'm like, I'm barely like 30 years old. I mean, I'm 32, whatever. Like I, I haven't been around that long. My first code was like Angular. I don't have the longevity you have. And to hear you continue to say the things you're saying really drives it home. No, the most important thing is actually to say the thing again, because people aren't listening. So right. the more we talk, the more that we will listen, the better off everyone will be. I love that. I'd love to have you on at another point to talk about more complex questions like how do you view the role of foundations? How do you view the role of user groups in forcing companies to implement open standards? Unfortunately, this is a time-bound podcast, and that's just that we live in a temporal world. So I'm going to have to ask a couple of questions. One, where can people find you on the internet? Where can they follow you? So as you said in the beginning, I'm the Brazilian Java man. So I'm BR Java man everywhere, right? So you can find me on Twitter, DMs are open. You can find me on LinkedIn. I will add you. All right. So I'm BR. Just search for BR Java Man and you're going to find me everywhere. And I'm very open to have those conversations. I think that, you know, I really love that you're doing this. Uncle Bob says that every five years, we double the number of developers. So every five years, half of the developers never heard of any of that. 
So I think we have to repeat this over and over again, because really it's important to get the new developers understanding the importance of all of these and how they can participate in all of these. So I'm totally open. Anyone that needs any help with open source or with the developer career, just ping me. I'm very happy to help all of you. Justin, I, I feel like our guests are just overall exceptionally nice people. Have you noticed yes. that? Okay. It's just, <laughs> well, it's, I, I've, it's learned, a... <laughs> I've learned more about Java than I've ever had. Uh, Same, there's some things where I, where you were talking about, I was like, wait, really? Oh, wow. I and I used that. to be a closure developer for a while. So like, I, yeah. I didn't know half of this stuff. So this is great. My awesome. second question is actually part of the final part of our show called mm -hmm. Spotlight. In Spotlight, we talk about projects, people, things, whatever we want. We feel needs a little light today, needs a little love. So Justin Dorfman, what would your spotlight be today? Coffeezilla on YouTube. It's a person who goes after scam artists and he's doing really good work, you know, making sure that people don't get ripped off. So Coffeezilla, check him out. Interesting. Thank you very much. My spotlight today is going to be the great book of Amber. So Roger Zelazny is one of my favorite science fiction and fantasy authors. Over the past few days, I felt very stressed. And so I did what Richard does when he is stressed. I read a book instead. And it was amazing. I've read it before. I just really love this series. So if you're interested in having a long, epic, space operatic fantasy with the multiverse from the 70s, go check out The Great Book of Amber by Zelazny. Bruno Souza, what is yours? Okay, so I'm not sure if that person needs a little love, but I think that the light of all the discussion that we have here, there's an awesome book that I want to recommend. It's called Give and Take by Adam hmm. Grant. So that book lays the groundwork of why communities are important and why you is watching us here, why you should really join and build and participate on communities like open source. So the book does not talk about open source at all, but it talks about why communities are important and why you should be a giver instead of a taker. So I think that's what we need. I think open source in general needs love, needs more people giving and less people taking. So give and take is a book that's going to show you why you should be a giver and why you should, you should give to the open source community. I love that. And if anything, that should be your book. You could have written it. Thank you for giving your time here today and your energy and your parrots sounds super appreciated. <laughs> be well. Uh, let us know if we can help in any way. And guests do follow up. He does seem like a very open person. Thank you. Again. Perfect. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Justin. It was awesome to be here with you guys. Thanks a lot.